0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast who assesses the final hearing of the House committee investigating the January 6 insurrection and the sad reality that Donald Trump continues to escape accountability. Linda Benish, communications director with Social Security Works, who discusses policies proposed by Republican senators that would weaken or end Social Security and Medicare. And Kate Sugarman, a family physician in Washington, D.C., who talks about the assistance she and other volunteers are providing to asylum seekers who are being used as political props by Republican governors. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: Weeks before the annual International Monetary Fund World Bank meeting, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Amour Motley, a leading voice of developing nations threatened by climate change, came to Washington, D.C., seeking relief for countries harmed by rising U.S. interest rates and a surging U.S. dollar. Motley met with U.S. Treasury officials seeking emergency financial relief for countries hit hardest by surging interest rates and recession. U.S. Treasury officials who dominate IMF and World Bank policy rejected Motley's economic relief proposals, called the Bridgetown Agenda. The American Prospect reports that U.S. officials instead suggested a new borrowing program recently launched by the IMF for countries facing food price shocks, food insecurity, and famine. For decades, developing nations have gone into recession whenever global interest rates increase and the U.S. dollar rises in value. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development concluded in a new report that rising interest rates could set off a global recession. But while hiking rates to contain inflation may now be the preferred policy remedy for the U.S. domestically, many economists argue that policymakers should blunt the consequences of rate rises for the rest of the world by providing liquidity and investment through multilateral institutions like the IMF and World Bank. As an inmate in the New York State Correction System, Johnny Perez was paid 36 cents an hour for making goods for state and local agencies. Now released, Perez is campaigning for the abolition of the slave-like conditions imposed on prisoners, which is mandatory for most inmates. Perez and his allies are now pushing to eliminate the slavery loophole that allows incarcerated people to be paid minuscule wages for work, which they cannot refuse. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, ratified in 1865, abolished slavery except as punishment for a crime in which a person was convicted. According to a recent ACLU report, 800,000 state and federal prisoners are forced to produce $11 billion a year in goods and services. The average wage is between 13 and 52 cents an hour. Five states, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas force prisoners to work without pay. Prison reformers have mobilized a digital media campaign to end the slavery exception in the U.S. Constitution. A bill co-sponsored by Congresswoman Nakima Williams and U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley would abolish the exception, but it has never gotten out of committee. Activists have worked to place referendum questions on the November 8 ballot to remove the Exception Clause from state constitutions in Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont. Amazon suspended 50 workers at its unionized warehouse in Staten Island after a fire burned in a cardboard trash compactor left the warehouse filled with smoke. Evening shift workers were first told by supervisors to stay in the break room, but with little notice, later ordered them to return to their workstations. According to the Gothamist, leaders of the Amazon Labor Union that night led a delegation of 100 employees to the company's human resources office demanding answers about what had happened when they were told to return to work or they would be written up by managers. Many of those who have been suspended pending an investigation were leaders of the union that Amazon has never recognized. The suspensions came as the company is facing a new union election at its Albany warehouse organized by the Amazon Labor Union. Labor lawyer Seth Goldstein called the indefinite suspension of the Amazon workers a violation of their rights to join a collective action to address concerns about working conditions. Goldstein added the workers did not feel safe going back to work, as many described a noxious smell of burning chemicals and smoke still lingering in the air when management ordered them to return to the warehouse. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: Months after it launched a series of public hearings, the House Select Committee, investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, held its last scheduled hearing on October 13th. The committee's unanimous vote, issuing a subpoena to former President Donald Trump, and video recordings of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi desperately calling for police and National Guard troops to protect the Capitol from Trump insurrectionists, captured most headlines. But disturbing revelations emerged about the U.S. Secret Service not acting on information they had regarding armed Trump supporters' explicit plans to stage a violent attack on Congress to prevent a peaceful transition of power from Trump to Joe Biden, raising serious questions about possible complicity with the coup plotters. Recent press reports suggest that a sizable percentage of FBI employees were sympathetic toward the January 6th insurrectionists. This information, along with the fact that former and current police and military personnel participated in the coup attempt, has raised questions about these government institutions' allegiance to upholding and protecting the U.S. Constitution. Your reporter spoke with Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast and author of They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Here she discusses unanswered questions about the Secret Service and FBI in action to protect Congress in the days before and on January 6th, and the sad reality that neither Trump or his Republican co-conspirators have been held accountable for any of their multiple crimes.
2: With January 6th, we all knew it was coming or at least had the ability to know that the attack was coming because the perpetrators were planning it on the internet and leaving a giant evidence trail. And so if I was able to see that, if I was able to see for example uh Wood, you know, Trump's lawyer, recruiting uh participants and you know, if I could hear Steve Bannon and Michael Flynn and uh, Roger Stone and many others, you know, calling for a insurrection and an attack, then obviously uh the Secret Service could have, the FBI could have, Congress uh, should have been prepared. I mean, everyone prepared for the worst, and they weren't. And there obviously was some level of complicity from within. You know, you can call it negligence or incompetence, but when there's so much evidence in the public domain and a very consistent track record from Trump and his cohort of threatening, I uh, should have assumed it would happen. This is the same plot that they had in 2016, when Roger Stone came up with the term, stop the steal, and said there would be a bloodbath unless Trump was made president. Uh, he was made president, so they didn't need to do it. This time around, they did. And You know, what I wonder is why Biden would not immediately investigate this for his own safety uh, after taking office in 2021. You know, if there are people in the Secret Service who aren't protecting him or protecting Kamala Harris or others, you know, he obviously should know uh, both because it's a crime, uh, but also because he's in danger. And then the same goes for Christopher Ray. I don't understand why he is still there either, because he let a coup, an attempted coup and violent attack happen um, and then denied foreknowledge of it, even though the average American could find that knowledge on the Internet.
0: Well, well put. Extremely disturbing stuff. Well, Sarah, one thing that really stands out when we look at the uh, totality of the evidence introduced by the January 6th committee, and that is the stark fact that Merrick Garland, the attorney general in the Department of Justice, has not indicted Trump or any of his co-conspirators for their treasonous violent coup attempt. There's been really no legal consequences for any of them. And there's a lot of predictions, of course— without accountability, the inevitability of another coup attempt will be right around the corner. I heard one commentator over this weekend talking about the impact of the threat to democracy that we've seen in the January 6th attack as not being really an effective issue for Democrats in the midterm election coming up November 8th, because she says without any indictments, without any accountability, all this, for many people, is just background noise.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's worse than background noise, you know, because in the beginning, uh, you know, after Biden won the election, the vast majority of Americans believed that he was a legitimate winner, including the vast majority of Republicans. At this point, um, the majority of Republicans do not because so much time has passed and there's been so much propaganda, but also because they assume that if Trump were launching a coup and insurrection, sedition, so forth— that if this is serious, Merrick Garland would indict him. The DOJ would act. That is one of the primary arguments they make, is that he couldn't have possibly committed any crimes, that Trump is completely crime-free, and so are all the people surrounding him, because otherwise, the DOJ would obviously indict him. And that's, you know, Merrick Garland is doing an enormous amount of damage to this country. I mean, it damages the elections, but more importantly, it damages our public safety and our national security. We all witnessed this. He also could have indicted Trump on other things, like he came into the DOJ role with the Mueller report already written out with, you know, about a dozen counts of obstruction of justice detailed within. He could have indicted Trump. He's refused to indict him for anything, including, uh, you know, stealing classified documents and bringing them to Mar-a-Lago. Um, And now we Americans are going to bear the consequences of this. Um, And it's it's just shameful. Uh, I've been worried about it for a very long time. And a lot of people were in denial. They kept saying, oh, you know, be patient. You know, he's just carefully calibrating and he's going to do it. But When you have a mafia state trying to regroup, when you have a failed coup, you know, that coup becomes a dress rehearsal and the mafia state actors simply return. And anyone who's studied this type of country knows this, including Merrick Garland. And so his decision to not indict, uh, he knows full well what the consequences are. Biden certainly knows what the consequences are. So I don't buy the naivete, but I also don't understand why they would do this because it's going to very badly hurt this country. And we may well see violence uh, in the midterm elections, little miniature versions of uh, January 6th throughout the country, if the results are violently contested.
0: That was Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast and author of They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. For more analysis and commentary on the House January 6th Committee's investigation, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The state of the U.S. economy is a top issue for Americans in the weeks before the critical November 8th midterm election that will determine control of Congress. While the Supreme Court's ruling ending women's reproductive rights and the Republican Party's attack on democracy are major concerns for many, record levels of inflation and predictions by economists that a recession looms on the horizon, has many families worried about their economic future. One economic issue that is emerging as a major topic of debate in House and Senate election campaigns are Republican proposals that could weaken or end Social Security and Medicare programs that more than 60 million Americans rely on. In a recent speech, President Biden warned that Republicans pose a threat to Social Security and Medicare citing a plan drafted by Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, who chairs the GOP Senate Campaign Committee. His plan would allow Social Security and Medicare to sunset if Congress did not pass new legislation to extend them every five years. Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson proposes renegotiating and reauthorizing these programs every year. Democrats, on the other hand, have broadly called for protecting and expanding Social Security and Medicare's current benefits. Your reporter spoke with Linda Benish, communications director with the group Social Security Works, who discusses policies proposed by GOP senators that would weaken or end Social Security and Medicare in the midst of the 2022 midterm election campaign.
3: So Mitch McConnell, he's pretty upset with Senators Scott and Johnson right now. And that's not because he disagrees with them on policy. Mitch McConnell is absolutely on board for going after, cutting, dismantling Social Security and Medicare. But he doesn't understand why they feel the need to say it out loud. You know, Mitch McConnell is like, we have an election coming up. What are you doing? But the answer is that Rick Scott and Ron Johnson, they're just so hostile to the idea of people getting the earned benefits that they paid their working lives for that they can't stop themselves. So, Rick Scott, he released a policy agenda for the Republicans earlier this year. And um, I should also mention Scott's not just some random senator. He's the head of the um, Republican Senate campaign arm and has been campaigning um, and giving a lot of money to the Republican Senate candidates. So Scott's plan, it would mean that every five years, every federal government program, including Social Security, Medicare, veterans benefits, would have to be voted on. um, And Congress would have to agree to reauthorize it or else it would end, be terminated. And so that means that every five years, Social Security and Medicare beneficiaries would be left in limbo, wondering, um, is Congress going to reauthorize our benefits? Are they going to cut it? Are they going to privatize it? Are they going to end it entirely? It's going to be just another part of congressional wheeling and dealing, just no longer the secure and benefits that people have paid for. So that's Rick Scott. Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin heard Scott's plan, and he decided, you know what, I don't think that's cruel enough. I think that we should um, require Social Security and Medicare to be authorized every year. So they're currently what's called mandatory spending, um, which means that no matter what, those programs are going to continue. It's automatic. Congress doesn't have to do anything into what's called discretionary spending, which means that Congress does have to vote to reauthorize it every year. So that would turn Social Security and Medicare from guaranteed earned benefits into just one more program that's on the congressional chopping block every single year.
0: Wow. Now, it used to be that talking about monkeying around with Social Security or Medicare was the so-called third rail of politics, that you'd get burned. You might die a political death if you started talking about changes to Social Security and Medicare. Why is it that these two prominent GOP politicians think they can propose these major changes that would impact tens of millions of Americans in a negative way, how can they think they can get away with this? One thing I'll just put out there, I don't think we've seen nearly enough media coverage of these proposals and their impact on average people. Because I think if there was that kind of important coverage that it deserves, the public reaction would be extremely negative, and these guys would be crawling under a rock somewhere.
3: Yeah, you read my mind. That really was going to be my first answer. That if the media was giving this the attention that it's that it deserves, uh, then we would be happy. They would would be getting punished for saying these things. Um, and so, with some ex- other than some exceptions like yourself, um, we're not seeing as much media attention as this should be getting. So I would really encourage folks to be writing letters to the editors to your local papers, calling TV stations. If you're on Twitter, tweet at the. Reporters at your local papers and TV stations say that this is something that they should be covering because this really does matter to a lot of people. Um, If you poll people, they say whether they're Democratic, Republican or independent voters, they don't want Social Security and Medicare benefits cut. They actually want them to be increased and Social Security is a very top priority voting issue for them. And so people want to be hearing about this. They're interested, but um, the media is just they kind of see it as oh this is a boring wonky topic and um they just don't understand why it's important or in some cases um they think that oh this is just democrats you know crying wolf and it's of course this could never actually happen but the truth is that we came extremely close multiple times during the obama years um, to social security and medicare getting cut and it's just the actions of a few brave politicians like former uh, senate majority leader harry Reid, that stopped it but as well as uh, activists around the country and ordinary people rising up and saying no, but we did come far too close. And so I think anyone who says this would never happen just needs to look at some of the history there.
0: And just quickly, we're almost out of time, but what would be at the top of Social Security Works, your group's agenda in in the next Congress in terms of policy changes, reforms needed for both uh, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid?
3: of our list it would be passing a bill called the social security 2100 act that's sponsored by a uh, representative john larson who and he's one of our greatest social security champions he's got 90 percent of house democrats on that bill um, and we're getting closer to a floor vote with every congress so i really think if democrats keep control of the house and senate we can get that passed and that requires the wealthiest to pay their fair share strengthens social security expands benefits for everyone, as well as a lot of important targeted benefit increases as well.
0: That was Linda Benish, Communications Director with Social Security Works. Learn more about the national campaign to protect and strengthen Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Last April, Republican governors from border states Texas and Arizona began sending busloads of immigrants to cities including New York, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., making the argument that the rest of the country should help them deal with the flood of new immigrants crossing the border into their states. These asylum seekers, who had been cleared to legally remain in the U.S. pending their asylum hearings, were often deliberately misinformed or uninformed, about what to expect after they arrived in the cities they were bused to. Immigrant rights advocates criticized these actions as politically motivated stunts where migrants were used and abused as props. Washington, D.C. has received some 7,000 migrants since April, with no advance government plans in place to support them or arrange for transportation to cities where they have family members. So many volunteers stepped up to welcome them provide housing and other material support while they are in D.C., and assist in coordinating transportation on the next leg of their journey. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Kate Sugarman, a family physician at a D.C. health clinic who's been volunteering since April. She's active with a national group called Doctors for Camp Closures. Here she explains how her local volunteer group has been assisting asylum seekers and what she would like to see happen when refugees apply for asylum.
4: Sometimes I'm a greeter, you know, when we find out if we get advance notice that a bus is coming, or to help people as we, you know, work with them to figure out their next step. But also as a physician, you know, I've been able to help with some medical needs, you know, or delivering food or, you know, people started coming in about April, so cold weather wasn't an issue, but we're rapidly preparing now to collect coats and and you know clothing for cold weather so i'm really curious with this number of people after you welcome them where do they go and what do they do you know we work with them to figure out a plan if they have friends or family in another city then we help them you know get transportation to reunify with people in another city somewhere about 10 to 20 percent of the people who come don't have friends or family in other parts of the u.s so then um you know, we're patching together places to stay. So, you know, we do have volunteers who host people. One of our volunteer early on hosted a family, and they're, they're now like her family. It was a husband and wife, and the wife was like eight months pregnant, and uh, she said, You know, people said that there's no room at the end, she said, but there was room at my end, and now they're her family, but, um, you know, that's the exception, and, you know, with the volume of people coming, you know, home hospitality can only hold so many people. You know, we've patched together kind of some, you know, discount hotels temporarily until people can get on their feet. The city has done a little bit of shelter, but... The city now um, opened up or they announced the opening of an office of migrant services, which is highly problematic because it will ban the newly arrived people from being eligible for city services down the road. So it's a very discriminatory, punitive office that will ban people from getting the services that they need to, to build a life here. It hasn't been approved to be like a permanent program, and we are actively calling for the members of city council to not approve it unless those discriminatory clauses can be, um, you know, removed. So I'm I'm just curious with the numbers you're talking about. I mean, that's a pretty big number, and they're still coming. That must be putting a lot of pressure on, on the city's finances. Are, is there any money coming from like the feds or any other place to help with that? The FEMA money has not been terribly helpful. I mean, we are volunteers. We're on the ground. We're really, you know, there with our heart and soul. And we're really treating people the way we would want to be treated if we were in their shoes. You know, we're not always seeing that from the kind of the official agencies. But, you know, in terms of a city like D.C. that, you know, I believe has a budget surplus, I think there are about 800 people who are staying here right now. I mean, most people don't stay here. It's not like we're talking about the billions of dollars that get spent on um, weapons spending. It's, you know, it's manageable. We're, We're managing. I mean, we're volunteers. We have personally fundraised about half a million dollars just out of our own pockets. In a perfect world, if you were in charge, what would you like to see happen? you know, looking on the model of how Ukrainian refugees were treated, let's let's treat everybody as if they're Ukrainian. I'm very happy that we're welcoming Ukrainian refugees. And I think we should do that with immigrants who are legally here. They've got the legal right to seek safety in this country. To quote the journalist Maria Inohosa, the people that we're seeing are highly motivated. They're hardworking. They've got grit. They've got all the things that a country wants. Our country has a you know very uh, severe scarcity in its labor supply now. Welcoming these people is like hitting the jackpot.
0: That was Kate Sugarman, a physician and volunteer assisting immigrants bus to Washington D.C. from Texas and Arizona. Learn more about the plight of asylum seekers now arriving in the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFA in Jamestown, New York, WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, KGUS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Belinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.